At this time, children, you are... The rest of you grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Acts chapter 1 this morning. So kids, that's for you preschool children. You can head out the doors out the back, and there will be people back there waiting for you to take you to class. The rest of you grab your Bibles. As I said, we'll be in Acts chapter 1 as we continue in our series. Now we're in our second week in Acts. Before I get to uh, God's Word this morning, I did want to alert you to... Uh, Pastoral care, just a care need uh, going on in the life of our church. Um, many of you know Teddy. Teddy is um, he's impos- almost impossible not to know and see and spot uh, when you're at our church. Um, Teddy uh, was taken to the hospital this morning by emergency, uh, by, the, um, by an ambulance uh, around 4 because uh, his pain uh, from his cancer and the treatments uh, would not subside and the, the medicine that he had didn't seem to be taking effect. So he was taken to the hospital. Many of you know he's been struggling with uh, cancer uh, for the better part of the last year, a year and a half. Um, it appears that um, it is getting close to the end for Teddy. Um, when he went in this morning, he uh, now has pancreatitis, uh, and it appears that various part, there is, it's not looking good for his levels at all, that is, for his organs. It appears that they're moving towards shutting down, and they're going to be calling in hospice if he's able to leave the hospital at all. So um, I'm going to stop, and I'm going to pray for Teddy. In particular, Teddy's in uh, room 444. He is heavily sedated. I talked to his sister this morning, but you can be praying for her. Linda Jean is pretty much his only um, close relative in Teddy's life, Um, and uh, we're seeking to support her as best we can, and she'll receive that. Um, You can go visit Teddy if you so choose. Uh, He is heavily sedated. He's probably uh, non-responsive for the most part, Um, so we don't probably want the whole church going over there. But if you feel led and called to go pray by his room, or pray for him from a distance, that would be wonderful. But let's all gather together right now as a corporate body and pray for Teddy. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that you're the God who um, goes to the ends of the earth with your, with your good news. That your kingdom, that when it comes, there is not a portion of our lives in our world that it will not touch. We thank you that your salvation, it comes to our souls. But Lord, because um, you have created us, and you, from the very beginning, called us good, that you're going to redeem our bodies, that you're going to give us a new and glorified body one day. And Lord, with that, with that in mind, we take great comfort on behalf of Teddy. That, Lord, that you, uh, as it appears that his, um, his life in this world, um, in the frail body that you have given him, is coming to an end. Lord, we look forward to the day when he will have a new and glorious body. And we rejoice in that. Lord, we thank you, though, Lord, that even as, we, as, he, as he, we look forward to that day for him, we pray that you would comfort him now, that, Lord, you would give the doctor's wisdom as to bringing the best medicine to bear to bring an ease to his pain and his suffering during these, um, what appear to be his final days in this world. Lord, I, I pray that even in his sedated state and sleeping, that there would be a sense of your presence. You're a God who has consistently spoken through dreams. And so, God, I pray that he would um, hear from you in these moments, that you would even be preparing his heart and his mind to, to be in your presence for all of eternity. Lord, I pray for his sister as she walks beside him during this time. Um, God, I pray that you sustain her, preserve her. Lord, I pray that we as a church would know how to love Teddy best during this, this, this season, that, Lord, we would care for him well. I pray for those who are close to him, like the Dershers and the Geralds, and the Fishers, and so many others in our church who have cared for him 
so abundantly over the years for his physical needs and his relational needs and emotional needs. God, I pray that you'd be with them, comfort them. Lord, be with them as they even seek to walk with him and and finish the race well in caring for this brother. Thank you for his life, God. A life that reveals and reflects the fact that even when our minds are weak, that when um, perhaps we we are not uh, as everybody else around us, that, Lord, you still move. And, in fact, it's a sign that, Lord, you're the one who moves in the weakest, that you um, do it to shame the wise. And so in Teddy, we find a vision of ourselves. And so, Lord, we thank you for his life. And Lord, we um, look forward to the day when we can rejoice with him for all of eternity in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 is where we're going to be this morning as we continue on in our series. Last week we did, looked at verses 1 through 5 as a means of introduction to the book as the prologue of the major themes that we'll be looking at um, as just a matter of view, just to see if you guys were looking. Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Oh, there we go. Luke. Our next-door neighbor's dog is named Luke, and that's, what, uh, that's, our, that's how our kids say his name, Luke. So they usually tell him to be quiet. Um, all right, so who also who received the book of Acts? Who was the immediate initial recipients? And what does Theophilus' name mean? Good, you guys are ready for Bible Dictionary um, and for playing that game together uh, with your family. You will rule, right kids? Good, all right. And the reason why uh, Luke wrote the book of Luke and Acts is to communicate to us and to provide us historical evidence to show that the gospel um, and all the fruits of it, that these are historical facts, that Luke researched these things. He's talked those were eyewitnesses so that we might be assured of the things that we have come to believe. And that by being assured of the faith, that we may be then projected, pushed into, motivated towards greater ministry and mission, as we'll see as a great focus of this book. We come this morning now to verses 6 through 8. I'll read 1 through 11 to provide us context both before and after verse 6 through 8. Follow along in uh, your Bible. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up. And after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And now we come to our focus passage this morning, verses 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go 
into heaven. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God stand forever. Well, what we have here um, from Jesus and what we're going to be looking at in verses 6 through 8 are essentially what um, are at least Jesus' last recorded words before he is ascended on high. It is in Christian tradition that perhaps while he was ascending, he gave the disciples or blessed his disciples with the ironic benediction. That's merely church history and maybe only myth. What we have recorded in the scriptures is his last words here. And last words are an area of study from some people. They're at least very interesting uh, many famous people have had some interesting and very famous last words. And we, we give attention to people's uh, famous last words because uh, they often hold great importance. Or sometimes they're just ironic or down, downright funny. For instance, uh, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, who both died on the same day, John Adams' his famous last words were, at least Thomas Jefferson still lives, not knowing that Jefferson had actually died earlier in that day. John, Thomas Jefferson, that earlier that same day, his final words were, is it the 4th? For he and John Adams died on the 4th of July, showing their priorities. They were men who were part of our founding fathers. Well, another founding father, George Washington, said this, It is well I die hard, but I am not afraid to go. That sounds like something George Washington would say, wouldn't it? Someone noble and someone with wooden teeth, that's something they would say, right? Actress Joan Crawford, um, who was a known atheist, yelled at her housekeeper who was praying for her on her deathbed, saying, don't you dare ask God to help me. Showed her priorities, and yes, her beliefs. She was consistent to the end. Some are sad because it shows the, the, the lameness of their priorities. Pablo Picasso said, drink to me. Hooray. Yeah, some are sad. Um, some are just tragic and, frankly, rather comic. John Sedgwick, who was in the uh, Battle of the Wilderness, it was suggested to him that as he, that he stopped showing himself over the fort wall, and his last words were this, nonsense, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. <laughs> that was unfortunate for him, that he had that opinion. Dylan Thomas said this, I have had 18 whiskeys in a row. I do believe that is a record. He didn't really live to tell many people about it. James Rogers, who's a famous American serial killer, at his execution in Utah before the firing squad was asked if he had any last words, and he said, yes. Well, yes, would someone provide me a bulletproof vest? And one last one, just for kicks and giggles, um, it's, it's frankly a, probably a myth that Oscar Wilde said this, but it's believed by some that Oscar Wilde said, either this wallpaper goes or I do. Famous, famous last words. Last words, they tell us something. They tell us something about someone's priorities, Tells us something about what's on their mind in the, at the very end. Tells us about what they want to leave behind in this world. Sometimes it's instructions to their children, what they most want to pass along. Greatest kernel of wisdom, what they most love. In this case, Jesus' last words recorded right before he ascends. And they, it functions to, as a means of commissioning his disciples. Commissioning them for a task. What we, this is what we see going on in verses 6 through 8. Is Jesus, as he's about to ascend, communicates his, pretty much a very, his, his final instructions to his disciples as to what they are to do. And so this morning, we will look at this commissioning by Jesus, these famous last words by him, to help us understand what our mission is in this world. And so three points this morning. 
on our commission. First, the vision for our commission. Second, the plan for our commission. And third, the power for our commission. If I get through the first point and you go, oh no, he's preaching for an hour and a half, he's finally lost his mind, don't think that the first point's going to take about 75% of our time this morning. Point one, first thing I want you to see this morning is the vision for our commission. Uh, Many commentators have looked at verse 8, this whole um, promise that God would give the power of the Holy Spirit so that they may be eyewitnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth as being the critical theme and the center focus of the book of Acts. And while we will see um, in just a moment that is indeed a significant um, central theme of the book, Verse 8 provides us indeed a table of contents for the rest of the book. There is more context going on to the book of Acts than simply that we are to be eyewitnesses to the ends of the earth. There is actually something being given here that is a greater vision. The mission is for us to be eyewitnesses, as we'll see. But there is a vision that we are to long for that's going to motivate us to be a part of the mission that God has given to us. And that vision is the kingdom of God. And you might say, where, where do you get that in the text? Well, it actually comes about, the, the Jesus' last words here, the context for it is in answering a question, a misunderstood question by the disciples. In verse 6, they say this to Jesus. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, their question has context. Because Jesus, as it says in verses 1 through 5, when it talks about what he was doing between the resurrection and the ascension, it says that there was one particular thing that he was teaching on, and that was the kingdom of God. Then we also see that the disciples probably understood some sense of Old Testament prophecy. From the Old Testament, we see that there is a connection from where the Old Testament prophets prophesied that when the Holy Spirit falls in power upon God's people, that it is then that we see the kingdom of God Come. And so they're thinking generally in the right direction, but then they go woefully wrong in their understanding of what the kingdom is. The kingdom here is not understood. They don't have a right understanding of what the kingdom of God is. They're thinking of something smaller. And if you are a teacher here this morning, if you teach in a private school or a public school, or if you're a piano teacher, or if you're a homeschool mom or dad, take heart. Because there is one central thing that Jesus talked about for three years. And that is the kingdom of God. And yet here we see Jesus and his last words. It's almost like you can hear the like, really? I have to teach you about the kingdom of God again. We've gone over this and over this and over this. And yet you still don't seem to actually understand it. But it's in seeing Jesus' corrections to their question that we get a proper vision of the kingdom of God, and therefore a motivating vision for us to engage in mission in our own lives. So three corrections I want you to see to help us see the actual vision for our commission this morning. First is this. As Jesus' correction, one for the disciples is, the kingdom of God is preveniently spiritual in nature. That's some 50-cent words right there, preveniently, which means go before. We'll get to that in a second. The kingdom of God is preveniently spiritual in nature. It is important to remember that Jesus, when he promises the holy what? Spirit. Not the holy body, not the holy political party, not the holy nation, the holy spirit, that he is actually answering their question about the kingdom. 
that this kingdom is going to be spiritual in nature. That God's kingdom, the power of it, is going to be a spiritual power. We think in terms of power today in, in our world primarily through physical power, through um, the ability to, to wage war, or through economic power. But that is not how the, um, God is referring to it in regards to his kingdom. God has a different economy. He is talking about spiritual power and spiritual riches here. The reference to the Holy Spirit is what defines the nature of the kingdom of God. And this is important for us to understand because the disciples misunderstood what the kingdom of God was supposed to be. They understood it to be a political kingdom, an earthly kingdom, whereas Jesus has been consistently talking about the kingdom of God as being primarily or preveniently spiritual and heavenly. And since this is a spiritual kingdom, this affects the means by which we seek the kingdom of God and seek to draw people into the kingdom of God. We do not seek to draw people into God's kingdom through arms. And I don't mean your physical arm, that either though, but I mean guns or swords. It is a heavenly throne, a heavenly kingdom that we serve. Therefore, the spread of the kingdom will not come through armies or by elections, but it will come by the word of God being proclaimed. Now, this is a consistent theme that we will see throughout the book of Acts, that the kingdom of God comes as the word of God about the kingdom is proclaimed. Let me run through this just to show this to you real quickly. Acts 8, 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about what? The kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Acts 19.8, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Acts 28.23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. This is the very end of Acts. In great numbers, from morning to evening, Paul, that's the he, expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God. And finally, the last verses of Acts 28 proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. When you understand the kingdom of God to be primarily spiritual and heavenly in nature, that will shape and focus the way in which you go about your mission. And that is to advance the gospel of the kingdom. It comes through word witness, through word proclamation. The kingdom is not advanced primarily through planting trees. That is lovely. That is great. In fact, it is not even primarily advanced through the building of hospitals or through adopting children. Now, let me hedge on this for just a second. I used my my words as carefully as I could here in this point, that it is preveniently spiritual and heavenly doesn't mean it is entirely spiritual and heavenly. But what we find, and what John Calvin says, is that our goal in the proclamation of the gospel is that through that, God makes his invisible kingdom visible through his church. So yes, we primarily, our prevenient goal, what comes first, what must always be first, and all that we do in ministry must be the proclamation of the gospel, the good news about the kingdom. We must not super-spiritualize this and think that the gospel has no implications for our lives in areas like social justice and health and the well-being, physical well-being of the people around us. We do give visibility to what God's invisible kingdom will look like one day. But what we do need to see is this, is the gospel 
is the expeditionary force of the coming kingdom. The kingdom primarily advances as the good news about how great God's kingdom is, is advanced around the world. So, that's the first thing, first correction we see. The second correction is this. The kingdom of God is international in its membership. International in its membership. The disciples want to know, in verse 6, it says this. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to whom? Israel. Israel. And so, Jesus, in verse 7 and 8, as I said before, he is correcting them in his answer to their question. What is Jesus' corrective to them? They say, is now the time we get to see the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus says, in answering that, you will be my witnesses to just Israel? No. You will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria? What? The Samaritans and to the ends of the earth? What? Double what? To the Romans and to the Gentiles? This is not how it was supposed to go, Jesus. You see, Jesus is not after a kingdom for Israel. The kingdom of God would extend beyond Israel and to the ends of the earth. You see, the disciples misunderstood the domain of the kingdom of God. They had too small of a view of the kingdom of God. They had a nationalistic, ethnic view of what the kingdom of God would look like. What they were looking for was for Jesus to take a throne and to use all those cool powers where you could, like, you know, get rid of storms and raise people from the dead and use that to kick the Romans out of Israel and to raise Israel up to being the height of the world as they were under David and Solomon. That's what they wanted. Jesus has a broader horizon and a broader goal. And this is it has moved beyond Israel and moved to the ends of the earth. Now, this is important to understand that this is not simply a New Testament concept. People have consistently gotten this wrong in understanding the Old Testament and the New Testament as they see national Israel and national political Israel today as being the answer to Old Testament prophecies. It's not. God has always been after something larger than a national Israel. And it goes all the way back to the very existence and shaping of Israel. In chapter 12 of Genesis, it says this. When God makes his covenant with the father of Israel, a man named Abraham, he said this. And the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a what? A blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The goal from the very beginning, from the very moment of making covenant with Abraham, was to bless not just Israel, was to bless the entire earth, was to go into all countries, all peoples. We see this also in the prophetic books. In Isaiah 49, verse 6, there's this great phrase there. It says this in verse 6, "...it is too light a thing that you should be my servant." to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. You see what he's saying? Healing Israel is too small. That's too tiny of a goal. We need something bigger. In fact, when the Messiah comes, there is something bigger. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to where? To the end of the earth. This is the goal of the kingdom of God. It is not for to God to establish for himself a physical and political national Israel. It is to establish for himself a new Israel that is going to be made up of all peoples and tribes and tongues from the four corners of the world. 
That's the vision of God's kingdom. It is too small of a thing if we're going to apply this to ourselves. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. It is too small of a thing for us to just care about the small little, our small little worlds, our small little nations, our, our tribes, our peoples. Which means Jesus did, God didn't send his son from heaven to earth to die for our sins simply so that your children could be saved. You get this. The goal, this, okay, this has implications for how we do church ministry because that means that the goal of the church is not to be, as is pushed by so many fundamentalist Christians, is for us to be a family-driven church. That the goal of the church is not to build walls around the church and say, if we can just save our kids, that that is the end goal of the kingdom of God. It is not. And frankly, if we do that, you know what will happen? We will lose our kids. And it's consistently been happening for generations. Now, the goal is not our small tribes. It is not just people who look like us and who are from our city or who have our race. It is all races, all peoples. Could you get a larger vision for the kingdom of God? Expand your sense of the mission that God has given you in this world, the sense of the purpose of the church, a sense of your life. They wanted the kingdom of Israel restored. Jesus said, that's nice. That's just the beginning. So yes, we want to save your kids. We want to see your your kids come to know Jesus. But could we say that's merely the foretaste of what we want to see happen through this church and through your lives? Yes, you want to see your fraternity brothers and sisters saved, but that's just a foretaste, right? We want something greater and grander. Correction three, the kingdom of God comes gradually. The disciples ask this, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's an adverbial clause. At this time shows you that they were expecting that God was going to establish the kingdom of Israel immediately. That he was going to go up and come down with a massive sword. And now Jesus has to replies to this question about the timing of the coming of the kingdom of God. And he gives two replies. The first reply is this. It is not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his, own, by his authority. In other words, they're saying, listen, is Jesus, are you coming? Is it the sec- you're going to go up and you're going to come right back down, right? First coming, second coming. They're going to follow each other really quickly. You're coming back really fast. You're going to establish your kingdom here today, right? This, or next week or sometime really soon, in the next 40 days. They misunderstood the timing of the kingdom. What we see in the New Testament in regards to the kingdom of God, is that when Jesus came, it was merely the beginning. And in some ways, we could get, let the disciples off the hook for this, but in so many other ways, if you actually look at the parables about the kingdom of God, it is consistently like this. Like Jesus describes the kingdom like this. He said, the kingdom is like a mustard seed, and it grows and grows and grows. It starts out really small. Now, do seeds just explode and we have a tree the next day? That's not how the kingdom of God grows. It grows from something small to something massive, but it takes time and it's gradual, which reflects this. Jesus is reflecting what theologians have come to understand that the New Testament is teaching that the kingdom of God is an already and it's a not yet. You can write that down or you should write that down. Already and not yet. There is a sense in which God's kingdom has already come. 
The king has come and established his throne. It is like the day on D-Day when the, the, the Allied forces established a beachhead. They got into Europe. It was the beginning. It was an enormous day, but there was a lot of work that left to be done. So that is the already. He's established a beachhead. The king has come. The seed has been planted. But now there's the not yet. You see the angels later on in talking about the ascension. They say Jesus will come back. So we know that this is not the fullness. Listen, if we're experiencing the fullness of God's kingdom now, we get a raw deal, didn't we? I mean, this place stinks. I mean, if this is the height of it, then, ma'am, there's other kingdoms out there to go pursue. No, there is a greater, there is a consummation of God's kingdom, a fullness that we will experience one day. We get a foretaste of the kingdom of God now, but we get the fullness of it later when he returns. Now, that's really important. It's not for you to know the times or dates that Jesus has set And this is a good corrective, because Jesus wants us to convey this. You don't need to be concerned. Don't concern your pretty little head about when he's coming back and when his kingdom is going to be fully established on this world. Jesus doesn't need us to be concerned about when he's going to come back. We we don't need to be reading the news, wondering if a certain type of helicopter is an answer to the prophecies of some sort of weird bug in the Old Testament. If you know what I'm talking about here, listen, why is it that every year, that here it is, that we see that Jesus, right before he's about to say, the angel's going to say he's going to come back, that people every year look at this and think, you know what, I want to try to figure out when Jesus is going to come back. And we get the, all these numerologists in which they go, they do all this incredible math work through all the Old Testament and the New Testament and the Revelation, and they go, Jesus is coming back in 1988. And then he doesn't come back in 1988. And they go, wait, I forgot to carry the one. That was... <laughs> It's 2088, 2088. Listen, Jesus says, I don't know what exegesis they're doing. But he says rather clearly, you don't need to be worrying your, your pretty little head about this, about when Jesus is coming back. This also means you don't need to worry about the established, the fullness of the kingdom of God when it looks like the kingdom of God is losing. Because for some of you, you're wringing your hands because it looks like the kingdom of God is losing here. He promises the kingdom of God will come. Now, this leads us to Jesus' second response to disciples about the climbing. And that is, uh, for the, this morning, I want to transition us to, um, to the second point, or second major point this morning. <clears throat> the plan for our commission. And, and in, in Jesus' reply to the question about timing, we see the plan for our commission. So, although, although we don't, we aren't to know the times or dates, what they should know was what? The answer is given to you in verse 8. That they would receive power to be eyewitnesses to the ends of the earth. This is what the angels are saying. It's so interesting. Jesus says, you're going to receive power to go to the ends of the earth. And Jesus ascends, as we're going to look at next week. And they're just kind of staring at the sky. And the angels are like, what are you still doing here? He gave you a job to do. Go. Go away. Go. Be gone. Be done with you. Listen, what Jesus is saying is, I don't want you to focus on when I'm going to return because I've given you a job to do. That's what you're to focus on. His answer is, don't worry your pretty little head about when I'm returning. Worry your pretty little head about how you're going to be a witness to the ends of the earth. That's what we have to be concerned about. Jesus says, I have a wonderful plan for your life. I am commissioning you to be a witness to the world that I am king. And that is good news. That is what Jesus is saying, and this is connected to the already and not yet concept. 
But we are to go to the world that we are living in a time in which the king has come and has established his kingdom and it's going to come fully and finally when he returns a second time. And we live in between those two times and we are to witness to the world that says the king has come and he is coming again. And that is a really good thing. We are to be the witnesses to that. That's what the first century an ambassador and a herald would do is they would go and they would tell the whole world when there was a new Caesar, right? One would die, a new one would take the throne and the ambassadors, the, the heralds would go to all the nations, the vassal nations of Rome and they would say, there is a new king sitting on the throne. That is what we are to be. Witnesses to the fact that there's a new king. So can you get this? This is the plan for our commission. Your mission is not to bring the kingdom of God. That's God's mission. That's God's, but we are to have a vision for the kingdom of God. And, but the mission, the role, the plan for God, from God for us, the singular and preeminent mission of our lives is to be witnesses to God as king. Witnesses. The apostles' work on earth was to bear witness to Christ. Now, there's a unique sense in which they are witnesses, right? They get to be eyewitnesses. You and I just get to be witnesses. They actually saw the resurrection and the ascension, They were there at the day of Pentecost, but we get to be witnesses as well. They saw it in live and in person. We get to see what? God's work, God's kingdom work done in our hearts, and we point back to the eyewitness accounts that we find in the scriptures and tell people and say, look back. This is why we have Acts and why we have Luke. Look back. There's historical evidence that he did raise from the dead, that he did ascend to the throne. And then we tell people about how that kingdom, how the kingdom is coming in our own lives, and God is changing us. And this is really important if you believe in Jesus. If you experience his kingdom come in your own heart and your own life, then the all-encompassing mission of your life is to tell people about that, to be eyewitnesses. And this is what the book of Acts is about. And this means that everything else that you do in your life is subservient to this. To this. All ministry, all work, all activity Everything is subservient to this call in your life. This means as individuals and as a church, we should budget our time, our energy, our resources. Everything should be seen in light of this call. So listen, we think we can, we make the kingdom visible by seeking social justice. That is secondary. It is still significant, but it is secondary to this call to be eyewitnesses, to be witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it means when we do things like tell you we want to be involved in the foster care system, we're not simply doing that because deed ministry is really good or because we really love social justice. Those things, those things are true. But we want to be involved in foster care ministry because we want to proclaim to children and to the world that there is a king who reigns and he is a good father. That's why we want to get involved in foster care ministry. From mobs to small groups to discipleship groups, listen, they're great. It's great for Christians who come from different backgrounds and different races to come together and be unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we have to have the gospel first, right? The unifying factor before that will happen. So the mission of the church is to be witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we see here is the plan and the agenda because then Paul... Luke begins to outline for us in verse 8 exactly where we're going to go. We're going to go to Jerusalem, we're going to go to Judea and Samaria, and then we're going to go to the ends of the earth. And in fact, this functions as the table of contents for the book of Acts. 
Verses or chapters 1 through 8 is going to give focus to the gospel going to Jerusalem. Then we begin to see in chapters 8 through 12 that there's a shift and a turn in which we find the gospel because there's persecution in Jerusalem. They get kicked out of Jerusalem and they go out and they share the gospel in the countrysides of Judea and Samaria. And then around chapter 12 and 13, we see another shift in which the gospel begins to go out to the Gentiles. And what do we find at the end of the book? Paul has gone to Spain. He's gone to the center of the known world. He is in Rome sharing the gospel to the ends of the earth. So here's what Luke is saying about Acts. Oh, you sit back and watch. God's going to do a pretty cool thing as we engage in his mission. This is a journey we're about to take. And like a little child, you've ever taken a long journey with a little child, right? You all know exactly where I'm going with this immediately, right? Like a little child on a four-hour trip, 30 minutes in, they want to know, are we there yet? That's the, that's the disciples, and that's those always trying to figure out when Jesus is going to come back. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And Jesus is saying, hush, who cares? We're, you should be so involved in what he has called you to be a part of, which is to be eyewitnesses in this world, that you don't care, that you stop caring about. When are we going to be there yet? This is the good news. Jesus says, I have good news for you, brothers and sisters. The kingdom of God has come, and it's coming I have good news for you, brothers and sisters. You get to be the witnesses of the king to the rest of the world. And there's one final bit of good news. See, where do I often, at this point of the sermon, where we come near the close, or about two-thirds of the way through, where do I point you? The cross, the gospel in some way, shape, or form. But as I said last week, we, with the giving of the Holy Spirit, there is a chapter of the gospel that we must also point to that we see in Acts, and that is the giving of the Holy Spirit. And so the gospel turn this morning is to right there at the center of verse 8. You will receive power. You will receive power when you receive the Holy Spirit. God has all authority in this world, and he's going to give us power by his own spirit to carry out this mission. To carry out this mission. This is really good news. Because here's what, if I don't, we don't have this, here's how this sermon goes. This sermon goes like so many others. It's just a moralistic sermon. You know, the two sermons that Christians really disdain, that we really loathe, the kind of, we were like really regret we didn't sleep in for, are sermons on prayer and evangelism. It, man, you, you, you'll see a bunch of Christians get mopey and turn their eyes down more quickly than when you preach on prayer and evangelism. Yes, Jesus, I know I should share my faith. Yet tell me how bad I am, Pastor. I know, I deserve it. My neighbor, we have, I see him every day. I've never shared my, the gospel. I have, I've never even talked to him about Jesus. People don't even know I'm a Christian. And frankly, I like it that way. I know, tell me how terrible I am. Or, or we look at this and we go, no, this is an incredible, this is an incredible call. I'm too small. Look at me. I've, I've got all these kids. I can barely even get myself dressed in the morning. I can barely shower. And you're asking me to be a part of a mission that's go to the ends of the earth? I think you're a little bit cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. This is a little bit much for me. But the good news of this passage is not only is the kingdom of God coming and there's going to be absolute success, not only do you get to be a part of that, but then that he is going to give you the spirit of God to live inside of you to empower you to carry out this work. This is not done by your own power. This is done by the power of God who lives inside of you. Now listen to me, brothers and sisters. We are a branch of the church called the Presbyterian Church. And, and we, ha- we, we have a reputation on the block. We are known for believing in something called predestination, that God elects those 
who he will save from all of eternity. I believe there is immensely, immensely biblical reasons for, to believe that, and I believe it wholeheartedly. But that has led for us, because of our lack of missionary efforts, to be called what? The frozen? Thank you. If you're new, you're like, what? <laughs> what kind of weird cult am I at? Like, these people have this weird chance. The frozen chosen. No one was dressed like Elsa. It is blamed on our doctrine. It is blamed on our doctrine of predestination as to why we're, such a, we're so bad at mission. I, don't, I, think, I think our critics have pointed to the wrong, do, false, wrong doctrine in our lives. The reason why we are the frozen chosen and are known for our lack of missional activity in this world is not because of our beliefs in predestination. That should actually drive us to mission, if you actually understand it. But we, are, we lack a trust and we lack missional activity because we lack trust in the Holy Spirit's power. And because in our branch of the church, we barely talk about the Holy Spirit. Barely. We like the God the Father. He's really great. And we like Jesus. He's swell. This Jesus guy, I mean, this Holy Spirit guy, he's so theologically ambiguous to us that we don't even like to talk about him. Because he weirds us out. And he makes Christians do weird things like having really disorganized worship services. <laughs> the giving of the Holy Spirit in, in power, as we will see in Acts, though, brothers and sisters, is an unfathomable gift. And if we come to understand it to the degree that we understand the atoning work of Jesus and come to love it and experience the power, the fullness of the Holy Spirit in our lives, my guess, my guess is we won't be known as the frozen chosen for much longer, at least not this church. Because what we see in Acts 1.8 and Matthew 28.19 is the Holy Spirit is given to us for what purpose? To proclaim the gospel more than anything else. Oh yes, he regenerates you. That's, that's great. But when he has regenerated you and he's done that work in your life, he then sends you out with power. And what we see and what we see in Acts 2 and we see to the very end in Acts 28 is that Paul is preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God with, what does it say, boldness. He is unhindered, even though he has a thorn in the flesh because he has the spirit of God. Will you enter into this call to be eyewitnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And will you plead for the Holy Spirit to fall on your life in such a way that your life reflects the type of lives that are lived in Acts? Will you be engaged in this missions call or you get distracted by all sorts of other great pro good things? My dad used to say, listen, the great bane to Christian ministry is to be distracted by good things when we should be doing the best things. The best things. The best things. So will you engage your life in this? Listen, God is at work in this world. We have great promises of that. That his kingdom is coming. You just have a very simple task, which is to witness to the world's it may cause you your life. Let me close this way by giving you a fairly lengthy story about pen, pencil, paperclip, and eraser. Pen, pencil, paperclip, and eraser. They were four street boys living in Korea, in North Korea. And these street kids were orphans, abandoned by their families and were living on their ability to beg for food or to steal what they could for themselves. But eventually they tired of the streets of North Korea and heard of more better, better provisions in China. And so they crossed over the... Uh, the river, and found shelter in China with a missionary named Andrew. He took them off the street, and he gave them shelter, and he gave them food. And the boys, after they heard the gospel, they took on new names. 
to hide their old identities in part, but they didn't want to simply take on the Chinese equivalent of John or James, because who would want to do that? And so instead, they took on the Chinese equivalent of pencil, pen, eraser, and paperclip. They were a tight-knit group, and so they wanted their names to be connected to one another. You know, whatever. Uh, Pencil, pen, paperclip, and eraser. They spent several months with Pastor Andrew, and he told them that they had dignity because they were created in the image of God. And he said that the reflection, the reason why they could know that they had purpose and dignity is because God would send his own son, the most precious and beautiful one, to come and die for their sins, to make them his own. And they came to believe. Well, a few months after that, after they had been discipled in in the gospel by Pastor Andrew, Pastor Andrew came to them and said, I have a proposition for you. I would like you guys to cross back over the river into North Korea and go share the gospel, the good news of the, your image bearers and that Jesus has saved you to other street children in North Korea. And they said, we just got here. They said, yes, but don't you think it is your responsibility to go back to those you knew to share with them? Now listen, pen, pencil, paper, clip, and eraser, three of them had listened very, very attently and had come to understand the gospel very wholeheartedly. And they were, at, they were ready to go. But Pencil, Pencil hadn't listened so attentively. But they were so close that he decided to go back with them. And so the four of them cross back over the Tamun River, at, back into North Korea, and they go to do work in the uh, streets with other street children. And they're sharing the gospel. And as you would expect, the word kind of begins to get out as the gospel is actually spreading amongst the street children. And someone tattles on them to the authorities. Now, only three of them, Pen. Eraser and paperclip were sharing the faith. Pencil was doing nothing. But because they were those three were sharing the faith, eventually the authorities found out who they were and got a hold of them. They grabbed hold of Eraser, and Eraser it was known that they, they tortured him to death. The other two were taken into an internment camp, never to be seen again. Pencil, Pencil went back to his old life. Ashamed of how he had abandoned his friends, went back to stealing and begging for food, but eventually he'd had enough of that life again, and he crossed back over to the river to go see Pastor Andrew, where this time he listened intently. And he came to understand that he was made in the image of God, and that God had given him a purpose, and it was seen through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And a few months later, just as he had done with the other three, Pastor Andrew came to him and said, I have a young family that's going back to North Korea to share the gospel to street children, and I want you to go with them. And so Pencil went back to North Korea, and he went back to his friends, and he shared about how he had once abandoned his friends and how he had lived in sin, but now he was proclaiming the name of Jesus. He was no longer ashamed of the gospel. Well, similar to his other friends, like pen, eraser, and clipboard, the word got out about Pencil to the authorities, and they went and grabbed him as well. And they went and got a hold of him, and they tortured him as well. They pulled out all of his fingernails, and eventually, eventually they sent him to an internment camp and they have this instruction, don't feed him, don't feed him. So for the last two months of Pencil's life, he went to an internment camp and to whomever he could speak to, he shared about the good news of Jesus Christ. And two months later, a mere few days before his 20th birthday, he died of starvation. He's a witness, a witness to the gospel. You know that the Greek word for witness is marturion. Martyr. It's a nice perk of the gig, right? Now listen, why do I tell you that story? Is it to send nice cold chills down your spine? Do pastors just come up with these stories just to have, you know, a nice ending to our sermons? How do I even know this? Did I make this up? No, I know this because this story was in Persecution Magazine. And the story was told by a man named Marie. 
Because Rhee was the chief officer of the prison camp. And Rhee had been one of the ones who had tortured Pencil. And he knew about Pencil, knew Pencil at his death. He saw something different about this boy. And he went and found the young couple who had worked with Pencil. And he, he said to them, he said, there was something radically different. He said, I have killed many young men. I have tortured many young men, but none like this. Who from the very end, even with the threat of death in his face, continue to proclaim the good news to us. So will you tell me about who this Jesus is? And the young couple said, yes, but if you were going to tell you, then you're going to have to kneel. So he kneeled before them, and they told him the story about Pencil's life, and they told him the story of Jesus Christ, and he prayed to receive Christ. And he said, listen, I'm going to take you back to my household. And he called all his friends, and he called his family, and he called guards from the internment camp, and he said, you've got to hear the story about Pencil and about this Jesus. And he tells Persecution Magazine that that day many people wept and all were baptized. The kingdom of God is still on the move. You see, this story, it sounds really familiar, doesn't it? We're going to see the same thing happen in Acts, almost exactly like that. Except this happened in 2006. Because there are people who are still there out there, little boys abused boys named pencil, pen, eraser, and clip, paper clip, who are still being witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news is the king has come to lay down his life for us so that we may proclaim the good news about him. Will you join him and join these young men and join many others who have gone before you to be eyewitnesses, to be witnesses to the coming king? Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, I'm jumping ahead to the rest of Acts 1. I pray that our response to the great commission that you have given us would be first and foremost to get on our knees and to pray. To plead with you to pour out your power upon us. God, I really am looking forward to chapter two. And God, I pray that you would even be preparing our hearts that the enormity of, the, of the, the plan, the agenda that you have for our lives would make us long for chapter two. To make us long to have a sense and an understanding of the power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. So gracious God, I pray that in a place where many of us, if most of us, and Lord willing, maybe all of us have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. We have been we have been given the Holy Spirit permanently, but Lord, may you fall on us and fill us with power for this work, to be eyewitnesses, to be witnesses to your work in this world, so that your kingdom may come as we proclaim the gospel wherever we go. We ask this in the name of Jesus, and it's in the power and authority by which we come to you in his name, we pray, amen.